All right. What we are in Ephesians 6 still today, um, I'll go ahead and read our text and pray and we'll get into the message. I'm going to start reading in uh, Ephesians 6. Uh, I'm going to start at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, excuse me, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the darts of the evil one. Let's pray. Father God, you are for us and not against us. God, you have promised us this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who was seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Certainly not the devil. God, we thank you. So God, as we open your word now, as we think about the shield of faith, God, illuminate our hearts, and God, give us confidence, give us, um, give us, give us boldness, give us resolve in this fight against the forces of evil in this age. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to start with a question. Do you know that you are constantly under attack by the schemes of the devil? Amen. Are you, as you go about your day-to-day life, are you aware of the fact that there are dark forces at work relentlessly laboring to see you fall, to deceive you, to destroy you, to get you to sin, not only to sin, but to love sin, to make you believe false things, to do anything possible to prevent you from walking in the joy of the Lord and living for his kingdom. Do you realize that there's a spiritual battle taking place every moment of your life? I think we already answered that. But I know this question may seem redundant, as it's been you know, probably repeated in, in all the past messages as we've looked at the armor of God, but I think it must be stressed as long as we're talking about the armor of God. The devil delights in it when people are ignorant of this battle. It's easy for Satan to destroy people who don't realize they are engaged in a fight. I believe the devil is successful at trampling over many Christians because of this. Many people, I think, come to Jesus under the notion that everything is going to be great and easy from now on. And in a sense, this is true, and this must be emphasized. Jesus did all the work necessary to bring us to God, and we have peace through the finished work of Christ. There is no work that we need to do to add to what Jesus has done on the cross. And when Jesus calls us in Matthew 11, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, 
For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So the Christian life is first and foremost a life of rest in the peace of knowing that you are right with God through Jesus Christ. But that does not mean we are not engaged in a fight every day of the Christian life. And when people begin the Christian life with nobody telling them that they need to take up arms, then the devil can trample them so fast that they literally don't even realize what's going on. The enemy deceives them. They fall into anxiety. They get nervous about whether or not God really loves them, as Josh discussed last week. They struggle in doubt. They still feel the crushing guilt of their sin and feel like they must work to maintain God's favor. Their faith crumbles. They try to overcome their sin by their own power, and eventually they just kind of give up. They grow cold. It's like they sit down in front of the television and give themselves over to a life of frivolity until the day they die. In other words, Satan tramples them on the battlefield of faith, and there they lay, wounded on the ground, bleeding out until the end of their life. And all the while, they're completely oblivious that they were ever in a fight to begin with. I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be you. God does not want us to be ignorant of this battle. He wants us to be fully aware. He wants us to be ready to fight. And he wants us to stand in the fight, not to be overrun. And this is the reason for the armor of God. Paul tells us in verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And in verse, in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. God wants us upright in this battle. And then when he begins listing the armor of God in verse 14, what does he begin with? Stand, therefore. So it's very much the emphasis that we are to stand. God wants us, his church, to be warriors who stand in the fight, not those who lay down and get trampled by the enemy. In the strength of his might, we are to come to the field armed to the teeth, with the banner of the Lord Jesus raised high, with him as our captain, into a battle where we will not back down and we will not be shaken. And I think of Hebrews 10.39, which says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, you may have heard that Christianity is a peaceful religion, and that's true. We do not battle against flesh and blood. But on the spiritual battlefield, against the schemes of the devil, we are to be violent people. From the moment we wake each day, we must make declaration of war against the sinful temptations that constantly knock on our hearts and against the dark spiritual forces that wrestle against our souls. And we never take our armor off until the day we die. William Grinnell, in his work, which has been referenced several times in the sermon series, and I think will be again. Uh, he wrote, he wrote a, a work called The Christian in Complete Armor. And he says, The Christian's armor is made to be worn, no laying down or putting off our armor till we have done our warfare and finished our course. Our armor and our garment of flesh go off together then. Indeed, there will be no need to water... Our armor and our garment of flesh, excuse me, go off together then. Indeed, will be no need to wa for watch and ward or helmet. I'm stumbling. It's 
Old English is kind of tough. But those military duties and field graces shall be dishonorably... I'm really butchering this, aren't I? These, those military duties and field graces shall be honorably discharged. Okay, so when we, when we die, we, we, we take the armor off. There's the point for all my stumbling. In heaven we shall appear, not in armor, but in robes of glory. I love that. But here, these are to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. So, to recap, I hope you know there is a battle. I hope you know that you are in it. And if you are going to have any hope in standing in this battle, you will need to be equipped. And one of the things you're going to need is a shield, the shield of faith, which is what we're going to talk about today. So just to get the verse in front of us again. So we've already, we've already mentioned verses 11 and 13. We know that Paul is telling us to put on the armor of God so that we might be able to stand. And here we are in verse 16 now looking at the shield. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now there's two things in verse 16 that I'd like to look at first before we take a closer look at the shield itself. First, you need to recognize the enemy is firing at you. There are arrows coming your way. Flaming arrows. You need to expect bombardment. During the first century and for most of ancient history, it would have been very naive to come to a battlefield as an army giving no concern to the thought of enemy missile fire. You need to expect missile fire. It's coming, and so you need a shield. The second thing is that Paul places emphasis on the need for the shield in verse 16, saying, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. The King James is even more urgent, it seems. It says, above all, taking up the shield of faith. Now, Paul could have just continued his list of armor pieces here in the same sentence, but he pauses for this emphasis. Why? Is it because Paul is saying the shield is more important than the other pieces of armor? I don't think that's where he's going, but I think he does want us to see three things. First, I think he's emphasizing that the armor of God is utterly incomplete without the shield. The shield of faith is, in a sense, the piece that gives effectiveness to the other pieces of armor. A couple sermons ago, when Reed was discussing the the breastplate of righteousness, he asked the question, how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? And the answer, by believing the good news of the gospel. He pointed out that you can be clothed by the righteousness of Christ, but unless you actively place your faith in that truth, you are left very open to despair, and Satan can easily attack you. Faith is the means by which we put on the whole armor of God. Therefore, I believe this is why Paul says, above all, take up the shield of faith. Because apart from faith, one must question whether you are really putting on the armor of God at all. Because the righteousness of Christ can only be put on through faith. Second, I think Paul is saying that even though the other pieces of armor will protect you from the arrows of the enemy in an ultimate sense, you will be severely injured or ensnared or ineffective if you do not take up the shield. Just because the breastplate will protect you from arrows doesn't mean it's wise for you to try to block arrows with your chest. You will find that it's not an effective way to do battle. A good soldier of Jesus Christ does not merely seek to survive the battle, but to fight well in it. 
And an effective legion moves in formation with shields locked together so that they may bring the fight to the enemy. I would love to take more time to develop this point. I thought a lot about just the contrast between the shield and the breastplate, but I think in the interest of time, we'll leave it there. Third, I think Paul is simply stressing the urgency of the need for the shield. He's saying, I really want you to be aware that opposition is coming. You're going to set foot on the battlefield, and before you can even get in formation, there's going to be arrows coming your way. So he's saying, don't dare set foot on the battlefield without it. Now, most of us probably remember some of our American history, or 18th century history in general. And we remember reading books or watching movies where you see the British army and the colonial army or the French army. They line up nicely on a field, and they take turns firing volleys at one another. Is this really strange time in history where, where Western civilizations seem to make a war or make a game out of war? It's just this gentleman's game to them. Well, your enemy is nothing like that. He will relentlessly rain his arrows down upon you at every opportunity he gets. He cares nothing for the rules of war. His cruelty against you is so great that he will even fire arrows at you when his own men are engaged in hand-to-hand combat with you. Because he cares nothing for his own troops. He will try to exploit every opening he has against you. With no regard for chivalry or sportsmanship. He will attack you in the night when you lay down to rest. He will attack you in your waking moments before you roll out of bed. He will attack you in the bathroom during your morning shower. He will ambush you on your way to work. At the sight of any perceived weakness, the enemy will strike. The Apostle Paul knows this, and therefore he warns us, we can never afford to be without the shield. I want to pause and try to give a little clarity to what we mean when we talk about the darts of the enemy. I think think it's really easy to talk about spiritual warfare in kind of vague or ambiguous terms. And and I I don't, I'll just preface, I don't don't pretend to to be fully versed in all the schemes of the devil. Um, But but I would like to try to make some comments to, to... maybe give some clarity to what what I think this looks like. When we talk about the darts of the enemy, I do not believe that we are referring necessarily to attacks by Satan himself. The reason I believe that is I think Satan is much more subtle than that. But I also want you to know he's weaker than that. And here's what I mean. Remember that Satan is not equal with God. Amen, please. Amen. He's not equal with God. He is not omnipresent. That is, he can't be everywhere at once. He is not omnipotent. He does not have absolute power. Now, he does have power. That's made clear in the Bible. But he is not to be thought of as kind of, here's Jesus, here's Satan. They're just kind of duking it out on this cosmic battlefield. That's not the reality we live in. And I think it's important to to remember these things just to clarify what kind of attacks we're talking about. I think most of the darts of the enemy come by way of proxy. In other words, these arrows, they ultimately trace back to Satan but he's not necessarily the one holding the bow. Back in Ephesians 2, Paul refers to the devil as the prince of the power of the air. In other words, the devil is the highest, most influential power over the general mindset and development of worldly culture. He exercises power over the way worldly society is shaped by way of his schemes of deception. So, for example, men, let's say you're reading, you're reading the news on CNN's website. And you see some link, you know, some sexually charged link, you know, 50 hottest whatever. 
And if you're tempted to click on that link to entertain the sin of lust, I don't believe Satan is personally speaking into your ear saying, click it, click it. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. I think Satan, through thousands of years of careful lies, beginning in the Garden of Eden, has successfully set up a culture designed to exploit the sinful desires of the human heart. Another way to put it is this. I believe that Satan fires his arrows primarily not by wielding a bow and arrow himself, but I think he crafts careful siege engines to rain down his arrows for him. I hope that makes sense. It's not Satan firing the arrow in the moment of temptation, perhaps. Rather, it's an arrow belonging to him being fired from a machine that he's been working on for a thousand years called the sexual revolution. Through a long history of subtle deceptions, he has convinced the world that pornography is a good, natural, and beautiful thing. He's convinced the world that sex is not a holy gift of God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, but that it's just a biological activity separated from any moral or spiritual connections whatsoever. And in convincing the world of this, it's like he set up an arrow machine, that's how I envision it, of sexual temptation that kind of operates on its own power, raining down volley after volley of arrows upon millions of men and women every day. He doesn't even need to be there to reload it or to run the trigger. It's self-operating. The world operates it for him. We have entire industries built around enticing people to engage in sexual immorality. It's a powerful machine that Satan has worked on for a very long time. And now, I, I envision that Satan's just kind of sitting back, smiling, maybe sipping tea, as he watches his arrows rain down upon the souls of men. Now, I bring up this illustration. I want to emphasize first, again, Satan is not equal with God. Don't imagine Satan as having any sort of equality with Jesus. He's nothing compared to Jesus. And Jesus will slay him with a word of his breath at the appointed time. But Satan is real. He's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. He really does prowl around like a roaring lion. And as Revelation 12 says, he really does make war on the saints. But never in your mind should you ascribe to him godlike qualities. Again, he has power, but he is not God. But I also want this illustration to emphasize that his arrows are everywhere. Okay? He's not God, but his arrows are everywhere. So we need our shield at all times. Now, while I don't believe that Satan very often wields a bow and arrow himself against individual hearts, I want to be clear there is such a thing as personal spiritual warfare. While I believe that some of the most persistent blanket attacks of the enemy come from the kind of arrow machines I just described, there is most certainly the kind of attack that is an aimed shot from the enemy at the hearts of individual people. The Bible is clear that the devil has his angels, demons we call them. Revelation 12 paints a picture of a war in heaven between Michael, the archangel, leading the angels of God against Satan and his angels, resulting in Satan and the demons being cast down to the earth. Daniel chapter 10 gives us a picture of the angels Michael and Gabriel fighting a battle against what seems to be described as a demon who is over the kingdom of Persia. In Jude 9, we're told of, a, of an exchange where Michael and, and Satan argued over what to do with the body of Moses. So God wants us to be aware that there is a spiritual realm in which angels and demons operate. These are not fairy tales or metaphors. These are actual realities that affect us. Satan has demons in the world that he commands in his war against God, 
And one of the things they do is try to throw water on the faith of the saints. One of the primary tools Satan uses to try to torment the saints is the weapon of accusation. Revelation 12 speaks of Satan as the accuser. And while Satan has no valid accusation against the people of God, those who've been washed by the blood of Jesus, he still makes attempt to torment them by bringing up the past. Here's an example. Have you ever been going about your day and all of a sudden a feeling of anxiety just rushes over you as memory of one of your past sins or failures just randomly pops up? Have you ever been having a conversation with someone and you are suddenly reminded of some past event where they hurt you and even though you have long since forgiven the matter, for a brief moment you remember the pain that you felt? I don't think the Bible leads us to believe these are random events. I don't think that it's just your brain playing tricks on you. I mean, certainly some of this might originate from within. I don't, I don't know that I can discern the difference. I believe these are arrows that have been carefully aimed at your heart. The arrows I spoke of earlier come in random volleys that rain down on the world in general. But these kinds of arrows come from a skilled marksman hiding in the trees, and he's after you personally. Therefore, you need your shield to be ready. The enemy would love for you to begin stewing over your past sins. He would love for you to anxiously wonder if God has really forgiven you or if he can really use you after that time when you really screwed up. The enemy knows that if he can keep you in constant introspection about your past sins and failures, you will be crippled for the kingdom of God and you will not have time to set your attention on loving people. If he can get you to constantly question the truth of the gospel, at least at the level of your emotions, then you will not be a person who brings the life of the gospel to others. He would love to see your heart infected with bitterness over past wounds. He wants to get your eyes off of the forgiveness and love of Christ and cause bitterness to take root in your heart so he can enjoy watching the destruction that springs up. So again, you need a shield. So we've established that our enemy fires arrows relentlessly, both in random volleys and in personal attacks. We've established that we need a shield, and now I want to look at the shield of faith itself. And I want to, I want to look at this in three parts. First, I want to consider what is faith? Second, what does it mean then to take up the shield of faith? And then third, I want to close by discussing some brief applications. So what is faith? Now, to answer this question, we could go deep into a passage like Hebrews 11. But for our purposes this morning, I want to try to emphasize, or summarize rather, by citing a definition of faith given by Martin Luther. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting in it. Now, Martin Luther's definition of faith doesn't matter unless it's supported by the Scriptures. So, let's have a look at one example in Scripture and see if we can agree with him. Now, perhaps the greatest example of faith in the Bible is the faith of Abraham. In Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave his father's house, to leave his home, to get up and go to the place that God would show him. God said he would make Abraham into a great nation and that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. Well, what did Abraham do? He got up. He believed. He followed. He believed the promises of God and acted upon them. He set his life on them. 
When God commanded him to leave, he had no idea where God was taking him. He had no idea how he would get there. But he trusted the promises of God, and therefore he set out. Paul says of Abraham in Romans 4, and this is the King James, I love this. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. I think that's a great outline of faith. We are told in Genesis 15 that it was Abraham's faith that was counted to him as righteousness. And this is so crucial to understanding the gospel. Many people think that the gospel didn't come along until the New Testament. Well, right here in Genesis, God sets it up and we see that it is by faith alone that men will be counted righteous before God. The Apostle Paul refers back to this many times, so much that the New Testament sets up Abraham's example as the gold standard for faith. Paul says in Galatians 3.29 that we who have put our faith in Jesus are the children of Abraham. You guys might remember the song we used to sing Sunday school, right? Father Abraham. There we go. His faith is the kind of faith that we are to emulate. We see in Abraham a man so sure of God's promises that he is willing to risk anything to go forward and obey. When Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, do you know why he was so ready to obey? Sometimes I look at that story, and I can't help but think, maybe Abraham should have at least double-checked with what God was asking him to do. You know, I mean, just kind of envision the, you know, what, God? Did I hear you correctly there? But he didn't. The Bible says that Abraham arose the next morning and started preparing wood. He did not question God at all. How can this be? In our human eyes, I would say, and, you know, atheists have argued, that Abraham appears way too eager to kill his son. But Hebrews eleven nineteen explains Abraham's heart. It says, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. In other words, Abraham remembered and trusted God's promise that Isaac would be the son through whom God's promise to him would be fulfilled. And he therefore knew beyond any doubt that even if Isaac should be killed, God would raise him because all the promises of God are sure, period. He did not waver in unbelief, but he fixed his eyes on the promise, resulting in a firm resolve to obey God no matter what. Throughout his journey, Abraham had many opportunities to go back home. He had acquired many riches and could have settled down many times and made a nice permanent home. But Hebrews 11, 9, and 10 explains why he didn't do this. It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He lived his whole life looking forward to taking hold of what God had promised. And he allowed nothing to sway him from his course. That's the kind of faith that we need to have for this battle that we're talking about. We need to be so persuaded that God will make good on his promises, that we are willing to stand fast no matter what. And when we have that kind of faith, we will find that it creates in us a resolve that cannot be overcome by anything. The kind of faith that Abraham had to sacrifice his son was an otherworldly kind of faith. And without the resolve that comes from that kind of faith, we will crumble in the heat of battle. 
In the Old Testament, there was a, there was a time when enemies were coming against Judah, and the king of Judah was frightened. And Isaiah came and said to him, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And this is the word we need to hear. So now that we've seen in Abraham a picture of what faith is and the sense of resolve that we see at work in his life as a result of his faith, I think we begin to see why Paul talks about faith being like a shield. Faith is what gives us the unshakable resolve to follow after Christ no matter what doubts, anxieties, accusations, or temptations might come against us. Actively trusting in the promises of God is what keeps us on course through the Christian life, being fully persuaded like Abraham that God will perform that which he has promised. So what does it mean then to take up the shield of faith? Here's how I would define it. To take up the shield of faith is to actively fix our eyes on the promises of Christ with absolute trust that God is for us, not against us. Now, I emphasize the word actively. Okay? One of the things that makes the shield different from all the other pieces of armor is that it's something you wield, not something you wear. A shield will do you no good if you don't actually bring it to bear. It is not something you just put on and are thereby protected. You must use it. And in this way, the shield is more like a weapon than a piece of armor. The belt, the breastplate, the helmet, and the shoes are all things that we put on. But the shield and the sword are things we take up and fight with. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, he refers to these as the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Another thing I want to emphasize in comparing the shield with the other pieces of armor is that the shield stops the missiles of the enemy outright. It extinguishes them. It puts them out. It renders them invalid. It negates whatever force they would have had. A shield is used to intercept an attack before it strikes the body. A breastplate and a helmet, however, are designed to absorb attacks that do strike the body. Why is this distinction important? You know, the goal of all armor is to keep you alive, right? Well, yes. But I think there is a distinction here. When we are actively trusting in the promises of Christ, no missile of the enemy can get through to us. It doesn't even come close to threatening our bodies. However, if we let our guard down, we are sure to be hit with arrows of one kind or another. In these moments of failure, we can be certain that God is still with us, that the righteousness of Christ is still ours to protect us fully. But as good soldiers of Jesus, it is our desire to fight well and not to fall prey to any of the schemes of the devil. We want to stand in the battle and fight, not just get repeatedly knocked down. Now, I kind of thought of the vision of, you know, here you have a person that's in battle. They have no shield. They have this impervious breastplate, which we have in Christ. But imagine just arrow after arrow after arrow hitting that guy. He's just going to be falling down and getting disoriented. He's going to survive the battle, but he's not standing and fighting. And we are to be those who stand. Maybe not a perfect analogy, but it was helpful for me. So what does it look like to take up the shield of faith against the arrows of the devil in everyday life? Well, I'd like to look at some examples of how I think this looks. And to do that, I'm going to set up, I want to assert that there are four types of arrows that the enemy throws at us. This is not a comprehensive list, just four that I can think of. We'll call them the arrows of temptation, the arrows of accusation, the arrows of doubt, 
and arrows of anxiety. And we're going to say that all of these arrows come from Satan's quiver, which we're going to call deception. Because all of these arrows come from the fact that Satan is a liar. It would have seemed redundant to come up with deception arrows as a fifth one, because they're all the same. So number one, arrows of temptation. Well, this is an arrow designed to incline your heart towards sin. It's the oldest arrow in Satan's quiver. The one that we saw in the Garden of Eden when the serpent lied to Eve, enticing her to reject the word of God, to count the pleasures of sin more desirable than the joy of walking with God. This arrow was designed to make the pleasures of sin look more attractive than the pleasures of God. It's meant to enlarge in our hearts sinful desires. So for example, men, you're sitting in your living room at night. The kids are asleep. Your wife is doing the dishes. You're browsing the internet on your smartphone. You're probably skimming Facebook, looking at cat pictures. But then you come across a link. And it's not something you'd call blatantly pornographic. But it's something that's definitely sexual in nature. Immediately, there's something inside of you that begins to rationalize the thought of clicking this link. There's a desire that springs up in you that's flirting with this thing that you know to be sinful. What do you do? The man who fails to take up the shield of faith will click it again and again and again. Like a fly being drawn to a bug zapper, he won't be able to help himself. But the man who takes up the shield of faith intercepts the arrow immediately. He is firm in his faith, knowing that real pleasure is in the presence of God, not in sexual immorality. He is looking forward to the prize of gaining Jesus, and so he is not thrown off course by the enticement of sin, which leads only to death. Men who take up the shield of faith reject the fleeting pleasures of sin because their eyes and their affections are fixed upon the infinite pleasures that belong to them in Christ. Number two, accusation. This is the arrow designed to rub your face in your sin. Now remember, the devil is called the accuser. He knows that the only thing that can bring a person to hell is unforgiven sin. Therefore, he is crafty in his use of this arrow. He knows that he has no valid accusation against the saints because all of our sins are washed away in Christ. But what if he disguises this arrow as though it came from the quiver of God? William Grinnell, again, made this observation. I'll try to not butcher it. He said, Satan knows an arrow out of God's quiver wounds deep. And therefore, when he accuses, he comes in God's name. As suppose a child were conscious to himself of displeasing his father, and one that owes him a spite to trouble him should counterfeit a letter from his father and cunningly convey it into the son's hand who receives it as from his father. Therein he charges him with many heavy crimes, disowns him, and threatens he shall never come into his sight or have penny portion from him. That's how crafty your enemy is. Have you ever felt as a believer that God was telling you that he's done with you? That your most recent failure was the last straw, that he was through giving you mercy, and now he's going to subject you to the full weight of your sin. We must be able to see arrows like these for what they are. And this calls for discernment. Because while God does discipline those he loves, and it may be that you really do need to come to God with unconfessed sin, 
you must still stand firm in his promise. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So we must raise the shield of faith and deflect these arrows by believing in the truth, or we will crumble when these hit us. Number three, the arrows of doubt. This is where the enemy tries to undermine God's truth. These arrows call into question the trustworthiness of the word of God or seek to make a word seem like something else. They seek to turn God's promises upside down. Now, as an example, I thought one of the verses in my life that I think of most often in so many situations is Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's one of the most sweeping promises that you're going to find in the Bible, I think. Because it says, all things work together for your good. And that's huge. That is huge. All things. That's not, there's nothing excluded there. That's saying that literally everything in my life is being deliberately worked out by God for my good. Therefore, nothing that happens to me happens apart from God's sovereign design to see to my ultimate good. And if that's true, then I can live with a rock-solid joy in every circumstance, no matter what happens. This promise, I think, should be central to the heart of every believer. But every now and then, the enemy hurls an arrow at that verse in my mind. When hard circumstances come up in life, the devil will try to exploit the situation to undermine the power of that promise. See, Jason, God isn't really in control of all things. If he were working all things for your good, then how do you explain this current situation? He tries to make all things not really mean all things. The devil loves to try and use pain in our lives to get us to doubt what God has said. He tries to shake the most foundational truths of the gospel in our hearts. Therefore, even when we feel we have no strength, when pain is most intense, when we can barely stand in life, we must take up the shield of faith to deflect the arrows of doubt. There's a saying that I've, I've heard often, I don't know where it originates from, but it says, do not question in the dark what God has shown you in the light. His word is sure. His promises are true. And he will uphold you in the darkest times of your life. David was a man who lived through many things that could have given him reason to doubt the promises of God. But he testified in Psalm 119, 140, Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. Number four, the errors of anxiety. The enemy wants us to be anxious about the future. He wants us to constantly look to ourselves for the resources needed to get through today. And he wants us to worry about the resources we're going to need tomorrow. I'm sure that I'm not alone when I say that I am prone to become very overwhelmed at all the pressures and responsibilities of life. Sometimes it seems that every day brings a new set of problems, while the problems of yesterday are still very much outstanding. There are periods of life where it seems like all that's happening is we're getting bogged down with more and more things and nothing's getting done. And I thought of the analogy, it's like, it's like you're playing Uno and everybody keeps hitting you with the draw four card. In these moments, the devil wants to keep your eyes focused on your problems. He wants you to look at your big fat hand of all these cards you can't play. 
He wants to keep your eyes off of Christ at all costs. But you must deflect these arrows of anxiety by looking to the promises of God. The God who calls you to cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. To the Savior who tenderly calls, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Remember that Jesus commanded us, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But then also remember our memory text from last month in Lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And since God has promised that his mercies are new every morning, we can rest easy knowing that tomorrow's mercy will be there for tomorrow's trouble. And that his mercies will always be just enough every single day. So we take up the shield of faith against the arrows of anxiety by bringing all of our problems to Jesus, knowing that he will give us fresh manna from heaven, as it were, every morning, one day at a time. When the Israelites were in the desert and God was feeding them with manna from heaven, he didn't let them gather manna for the next day, only for today, so that they were always, always finding their sufficiency in God. And that was for our benefit as Christians now. So no matter what kind of arrows the enemy throws at you, the way you deflect it is to place an active, deliberate faith in the promises of God. Now, a few words of application as we close. I have four things. Number one, do not fear the arrows of the enemy. Jesus has said that in this life, we will have trouble. There will be an enemy who comes against us. But he has also promised that just as he overcame the world, so will we. He said in John 16, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In 1 John 5, 8, the Apostle John says, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And then again in verse 18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. There's a song we sing that, that echoes Isaiah 54, 17, saying, No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So you have nothing to fear in the arrows of the enemy. You have only to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and stand fast. Number two, know your God. You need to know your God in order to be able to stand fast on his promises. It should go without saying, but we must be people who are deeply rooted in the word of God. This, um, this verse may have been quoted in a previous sermon recently. I can't remember. I heard it recently. Sometimes I'm not sure. Did I hear it here? Did I just read something? I don't know. But if it was quoted recently, great. It's worth quoting again. Um, in Daniel 11.32, God speaks of the end times and how the enemy will lead many people astray by words of deception and flattery. But then he promises this. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. The King James says they shall stand and do exploits. They will fight and they will do great things. Number three, 
be a lover of God and therefore a lover of God's promises. Now, it will do you no good to know the word of God if you do not love what he has to say. When I talked about the arrows of temptation, I alluded to to Psalm 1611, which says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But if you don't have a taste for that kind of pleasure, then that promise is not going to be a boon for you in the moment of temptation. If what you value in life is just sexual titillation and endless entertainment, then standing on the promises of God will not help you fight temptation. In James chapter 1, James says that, that when a person is tempted, they are led astray and enticed by their own desires. So when we talk about the arrows of temptation, don't think that, you know, that the, the, the excuse that the devil made me do it is never valid. Because a temptation is, is, uh, is something that originates from desires in your heart. And the only way to fight desire is with a stronger desire. So if you don't agree with the psalmist when he says that the steadfast love of God is better than life then you won't be willing to deny yourself the lesser things of life in order to gain Christ. So I would encourage you to taste and see that the Lord is good. And having tasted him, let your taste for sin fade to nothing so that you will be able to take up the shield of faith and be victorious in the moment of temptation because you will have found a better possession than what sin could ever offer you. You will have found the treasure in the field that is worth selling everything you own to obtain Christ or to obtain the treasure, who is Christ. Remember the example of Abraham, who left his old life behind and went after what God had for him. And number four, as I close, do not grow faint in taking up the shield. While you have nothing to fear in this battle, you still have to fight. While victory is sure, and it's already been won by Christ, you must still exert energy each day in this battle. Remember that the shield must be taken up. It must be brought to bear. It must be wielded as a weapon. Do not let your arm grow tired as you endure the missiles of the enemy. The Lord promises that he will strengthen you. And not only that, he promises that your fighting will come to an end. So I close with 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 11, which gives us this instruction and this comfort. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, just a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.